DevOps people? Heck, I don't know who you are, but I'm glad you're listening to us this morning. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast. This is episode number 41, Shining Light Holy on crap. Dark Patterns with Ron Bronson, who you'll hear from in just a hot minute. 41? 41. Uh, it, the number just keeps going up, Aaron. That is the way numbers do, in fact, work. Wow. I, uh, I've <laughs> written iterators that prove it, Wait, as a matter so of fact. Next, next episode, we got to, like... We we have to have the answer in the next episode. I okay. I'll do my best to every to everything. I will. I will. Uh, I can do that. I've got a couple of weeks. <laughs> I've I've learned everything much more quickly than that in the past, so I'm not too afraid. Uh, I'm your host, Michael Feenan. I'm also your host, Aaron Hill. How are you doing? How you doing? I'm, I'm good. I asked first. Ugh. You answered first, and I'm not going to answer just to spite you. Uh, <laughs> Folks, if you are enjoying the podcast, be sure to stop by our sponsors over at NewCloud. You can check them out at NewCloud, N-U-Cloud.com, slash DrunkenUX. They do maps and illustrations and services and soon to be some 3D Braille maps and things of that nature. Uh, let's see. If you want to find us, there are places to do that. There are the Twitters and the Facebook. Assuming Twitter stays up and doesn't crash for a million years like it did today. Oh, so it wasn't just me. Yeah, even though every one of those, like, is it down for everyone and just me websites said that Twitter was fine, it's because Twitter was serving up a 200 okay response. It just happened to say, uh, we're broken. We uh, gave um, you a page. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what more do you want? <laughs> but uh, Twitter and Facebook.com slash DrunkenUX and also on Instagrams at DrunkenUX Podcast. And be sure to connect with us on Slack. We talk in there occasionally. Give you shout outs. Drunkenux.com slash slack. Uh, we're, we're not on Snapchat. We are not on Snapchat. I don't have the time or patience for that, quite frankly. What, uh, show me your glass. Tell, let me prove to me you're drinking. Okay. It's colorful. Is it a, it is. Okay. a, a raspberry uh, something? You're close. Yeah. Okay. So it's some blue raspberry Svedka. Mixed with cranberry, cranberry black cherry. It's really good and dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I like dangerous. Let's see how dangerous it is in an hour. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have a glass with ice. Um, it is bourbon this week. We've switched Ooh. gears a little bit, but I intentionally <clears throat> uh, have not told Aaron what I'm drinking because I wanted the surprise him and I wanted everybody to hear his authentic oh. reaction. So I went out. I was restocking the bar, and I needed to pick some stuff up, and as I was going along the shelves and grabbing some scotch, I found the bottle. And I went, mm -hmm. oh, I didn't think I could get that around here, and I found a bottle of Basil Hayden's. <laughs> oh, no shit! <laughs> so That's that, great. So I'm drinking Basil Hayden's now. <laughs> it's good, right? It's uh, have, you, have you had it before? I have not had it before, no. Um, tonight yeah. is the first night I've got to, to taste it. It's, it's definitely a very... Uh, herbally bourbon. It's got a very kind of green flavor to it. Okay, it's it's smooth though, mm. right? Yeah, it's yeah. Smooth. I was I was really surprised with how smooth it was. Yeah, 
No, that's a, it's quite nice actually. Um, I, I was, like the bottle too. The bottle's really cool. Yeah, they no, it's the good job. I uh, I, I was surprised. I thought it was one of those things that somebody would mention and I would never find. So because <laughs> uh, I hadn't had never seen it anywhere before. So yeah, that's where I am. <laughs> I want to go over though uh, to start the night, the morning, the afternoon. I don't know. I don't know if I should when I talk about time when I'm recording. Should I talk about when I'm recording or when I think people are listening? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. Let's just say that it's evening because we're drinking. That's that makes sense. That's probably a good call. <laughs> uh, over at the Adobe blog this week, uh, I think it was this <laughs> week, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, like within the past seven days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so new, not old. Last. Sometimes we yeah. find old things, yeah. and that's fine too. So you sent this over. Oh, actually, it came out two months ago. Oh, was it? But okay. I didn't. I didn't read about it until this week. Okay, so it's it was new to me. So you're yeah. So you're a little bit of a slacker, but not like a big slacker. Yeah, uh, like I still show up to class just late. So we talk about Don Norman all the time yeah. for good reason. So take a shot. Uh, and <laughs> he wrote a post over at the Adobe blog. And uh, first off, I just want to mention because I didn't even realize this. He is 83 years old. That's amazing. And he is still out there carving a path and writing about this stuff and contributing. And that is killer. He's a very experienced user. I hope that I am that productive uh, <laughs> as as next year comes. <laughs> I Okay, so I want to preface this by saying that I have all kinds of respect for Don Norman. I, I've read his book, or I have his other book. I've read his one book, and... I have a lot of respect for him as a, like a UX person. However, I think he's wrong. <laughs> I think this article, <laughs> I I think he sets up a straw man where he's saying like, oh, no, I don't agree with empathy driven design because I'm going to define it like this. But in reality, what I think we should do is this. And then what he goes on to describe is actually empathy driven design, like understanding your user and how they would want to interact with your system. Um, whereas he's defining it, like the straw man he's setting up is saying like to, what was it like, imagine every user or like, it, it was weird. Like it was a really weird and overly selective thing. And I can only think that like he was trying to write a clickbaity article or something. <laughs> so the title of this is <laughs> why I don't believe in empathic design. Uh, so that's if you're wondering why Aaron feels so strongly about it, it, it does. I mean, it yeah. definitely sets up an argument to start with. Um, I'm going to say that I do kind of see where he's coming from, though. Because well, OK, can, go tell me why. Yeah. So me. the the idea that he was driving at, I think, does make sense because empathy works well on a one to one basis. And when we talk about uh, empathy, especially in personas, we we don't generally write group personas, we write individual personas, with the idea mm. being that we create an individual with which we identify, um, or at least can understand, you, you know, not necessarily identify because they're us, because that wouldn't be useful, but we create somebody that lets us get in their shoes, and that's what empathy is about. At the group level, I think of it more as a study in anthropology, so to speak. Like, when you're talking about your users in mass, um, because at the end of the day, like, let's take a Facebook, you know, somebody that's obviously mm -hmm. big. You have a user base of, what, a billion users now? 
it doesn't do you any good to think about how one user acts. You have to start thinking about them a bit in aggregates uh, as a consequence. But, but that's the that's the thing, though. Is I, I mean, he what he's describing in it, though, is he's saying like we should go and look at how our users actually use our product or how they actually do this task or something. Empathy is just about understanding. It's about understanding uh, and kind of assuming the experience of an other. It doesn't have to be like a specific person. It doesn't have to be like me empathizing with your Michael Feenan experience of something. It can just be like understanding that it's that my experience that I'm having isn't necessarily the experience that everyone will have. And so it's empathizing with your audience. Like, uh, I don't have to talk to a blind person to empathize with the experience a visually impaired person might have using my website. Even though it's kind of like a block or a collective of them, it's generalizing it out. Like, I can have empathy for that collective of people interacting with something that I'm creating. Which is basically what he's saying in the article, is to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is definitely a, there, there are some semantics that play into it, some philosophy stuff that plays into it. It does, I think, very much come down to one of those arguments that, what I, what I think the, the underlying message that he's trying to say is it's a forest for the trees kind of thing. That if you, especially if you are working somewhere where you're working on a product that is being used by not even millions of people you know, thousands of people, if you get all, you know, you can, you can really hyper-focus. Uh, and that's something that, I, you know, I've seen in user tests where like one, like one weird result tends to become kind of a focal point for, you know, writing user stories and things, even though sure. it doesn't represent the whole. And I think that's kind of what he's cautioning against there is, yeah, you you do you have to have empathy. You have to be able to think the way other people think and put yourself in their shoes and and whether you're thinking of them as groups or individuals, but you can't let that individual empathy drive. Uh, but the the ironic thing there is so if he's cautioning against letting an overly narrow definition of your user base skew how you're addressing, you know, a bigger problem the the ironic thing is that he is in effect doing that with the concept of having empathy for users because he's taking a very very narrow definition of empathic design and then addressing that instead of addressing the bigger concept of empathic design <laughs> it feels a lot like uh and and the way like you're describing that feels a lot like how i used to talk to people about marketing and content strategy mhm mm like yeah, you know, yeah. it's like a circle is a, a rect or a circle is a square. <laughs> a square is a rectangle, uh, but a rectangle yes. isn't always a square kind of thing. Where sometimes, there's, yeah, there's yeah. there's overlap. There's you know, depending on what kind of geometry you're after, there's just this kind of fuzziness. And I think it just depends on how specific, I guess, you're trying to get. You know, at that, and, and I. I worry sometimes that like when you do start talking about this sort of hyper specificity you know mm -hmm. well, don't don't worry about empathic design just do human-centered design and be done with it but human-centered design is empathic design, well yeah though. yeah that, and that's what i'm saying like i don't know that there's yeah. a lot to be gained by grinding it down to that level of dust yeah i i mean it's a different word for a similar concept the article is good and i i, I do think that he has as usual, valuable things to say about this topic. 
I'm just really stickling over like his weird straw manning of this concept. Um, especially because I think that like empathy is something that I think we collectively like in and out of the tech world, like all could maybe learn a little more about and would benefit from. Yeah. <laughs> well, the article will be linked over in the show notes. Um, it's at the Adobe blog. It's the blog Adobe.com. Uh, Go check that out. It's a great. It is a great article. It's a good read. Yeah, um, it yeah. will at least get you thinking about the way you consider users in the scope of testing and usability. Maybe tilt your uh, uh, approach a little bit because it never hurts to view things from a slightly different angle, if nothing else. Sure. Um, you know, yeah. trying to understand what, where he's coming from and what he's driving at. So, uh, with us this evening, we have uh, out of his nice, probably temperate home in portland oregon i'm i'm guessing it's uh not nearly as hot there as it is here <laughs> <laughs> we have ron bronson ron is a, a gentleman and a scholar he has worked in content strategy service design digital communications new media i think that that covers it but i'm sure it probably doesn't uh let's just uh say that he is the guy with whom you want to talk when you start digging into usability and things like this that fair? I think that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. It sounds fair to me. It's Seventy-eight give... degrees in Portland, Oregon. In case you're wondering. Oh, that's yeah. That's not bad. Uh, it's eighty-four here right now. So, um, but my sun is going down. I suspect yours is still a little bit up. Uh, still very up. Six p.m. If you are looking for Ron and you're out, you know, at any usability conferences or things like that, be sure to look for him. He's um, currently running the conference gauntlet with his talk, Defense Against Dark Patterns. Uh, that is <laughs> That's brilliant. going to be something, yeah, that <laughs> if you have the opportunity to see it, absolutely take the time to do that. We do have kind of a super hyper-compressed version of that from a, a brief talk he did uh, at Donut.js. Uh, we'll have that linked in the show notes so you can watch it. I think it's like 11 minutes long, whereas your full talk is it's like an hour and a half long, isn't it? Nah, 45 minutes. 40, 45 minutes. Still, you know, it's going to be missing a few things. So if, if you have the chance to see the whole talk, absolutely uh, take advantage of that. Ron, thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks for sitting down with us. We appreciate you uh, joining us for our, our drinks and our usability crap and everything else we're going to be digging into. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. So... This evening, we are going to be talking about dark patterns, dark UX. I tend to use those phrases relatively interchangeably. And I want to start with, and if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know I've, I've mentioned this a lot. Uh, we've had several episodes. Uh, if you go back and listen to past episodes of Real-Time Overview, there's a bunch mm -hmm. of those that uh, covered articles on, on dark UX. So, Ron, I want to give it over to you, though, to give us your definition of you know a dark pattern or dark usability so i guess I, what i will say well again it's good to be here um um in the last few weeks i've stopped using the term dark patterns because somebody actually made a tweet a few weeks ago and they were like stop using the term stop using the word dark uh to mean bad and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I thought about that and I'm like, oh yeah. And to be fair, I always sort of squeamish about the term dark patterns anyway. I always felt like it was an inexact way to, to communicate what we're talking about. It's very, like if you tell my mother what a dark pattern was, she was like, what are you talking about? Like my mom or anybody really, right? Um, so anyway, to answer your question about what I think, so I've been using a term and so I've been going back to using anti-patterns as a broader term, but really just sort of encapsulating all this under sort of the thought of hostile design, right? Which mm -hmm. we can get into. 
we can, for the purposes of this conversation, we can call it dark patterns. It's totally fine for folks know it as, but I guess I wanted to caveat that because it's been, I wrote a whole talk on dark patterns. And then the first thing I say now is, hey, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> let's never use that term again after today. You know? I, no, I like it. I, I, I think hostile des describes it much better. Hostile patterns frankly. is, yeah, I like that too. So how would I describe a hostile pattern? It's, it's really, or, you know, a hostile design it is, a, is a, you know, user interface. You crafted to deceive a user into doing something they didn't think they were, they, they weren't trying to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I was just speaking about them in the context of the internet, but of course these, you know, hostility and design exists, you know, which is kind of why I reappropriated the term because it's, I think it's everywhere. Um, and so anything from, you know, like, you know, banner ads <laughs> to you know, things on websites, uh, deception in apps, uh, trying to convince users, subscription things. There are all kinds of different ways that these things proliferate, I think, throughout the, uh, the digital space. Yeah. I, uh, I, I like to tell folks because, you know, anytime we talk about usability in general, a lot of these concepts have come over from, you know, the architecture world, from the print design world, from, uh, you know, all of these different spaces. And it applies here equally, just in different ways. And and one of the uh, comparisons I usually give is with casinos. Mm. Casinos are intrinsically designed to trick you into staying there. They don't yeah. have clocks on the walls. The way they uh, lay out their exits so that they are at the end of long mazes of rows of, of slot machines and things like that. The carpets are disorienting patterns to get you to keep looking up at all the flashing lights. There's there's all of this stuff that they have baked in that is designed to get you to spend more money there when you have decided not to. Uh, and that's where I like that idea of the hostility comes into play because mm -hmm. you've made your decision. I'm going to leave this place now. I've spent my money. I'm done. And yet they have employed tactics that say, yeah, but. Right. Well, I, I, so what I say is, is that the difference between a casino and, say, a uh, signing up for a newspaper subscription is that when I sign up for a newspaper subscription, the idea is I want to read some articles. But if I decide for some reason, you know, budget-wise, or just I don't want to read articles anymore, it would be nice if I could just click a button the same way I clicked the button to sign up to unsign up. But sometimes we sign up for subscriptions and you have to call somebody, and then you can't get someone on the phone. And maybe you know, like, it's so I think the difference between this and say a casino or something like that is like if I'm going on, a, if I want to pay my light bill, I'd prefer not to have to like jump through a bunch of hoops and, and gauntlets just to pay my light bill. And a lot of the things we see that are like, that are these like, you know, hostile, hostile, hostile things in design are often on sites and in experiences that are meant to, 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 to benefit us or meant to help. Um, and instead they hinder and cause stress. So that, Dude. that's where, in other words, I go to a casino, like I'm going to the casino, like I, I got in the car, I, you know, got a ride there and I went to do that. And it's an intentional decision. So, okay. Yeah. It's all the psychological stuff that happens stinks, but, very different than when I'm like just trying to do something. Like I just want to do one thing on the internet right now. And you're telling me now I got to do six other things to get to this one thing that I'm trying to do, which may be like my Geico app. Got in a car accident. Just want to get, just want to show the, the policeman my uh, insurance card. Oh, you want, me to, you want me to rate the app right now? Maybe right now is not the right time for that. Maybe we should, maybe we should wait to rate the app later because right now I just need this one thing, you know? The, there's a comparison, too, because not everything that is designed to get you to do more or, or do something that you weren't thinking about is a hostile pattern. So in this case, let's talk about, like, let's say uh, I just, uh, in fact, you can 
that my guests can see behind me. I've got a computer on the table back here. I'm, I'm finally, after seven years, building a brand new computer. I went to Newegg. I went to Amazon. I was picking up the parts and everything. Every big e-commerce site always has that section that's like related items or you might also mm. like. And those aren't necessarily hostile because while they are trying to get you to buy something else, they're doing it in kind of a passive way. They're doing it in a way that doesn't interrupt you or doesn't try to trick you. Like it's generally under a heading. Like, you know, people who bought this also bought this stuff. And so there is a difference between trying to use the psychology of relationships and things to get you to do more or uh, in the outside world, think about the, the, the hot lane in a store. So you go to check out and you've got the candy rack or you've got the impulse item rack mm -hmm. uh, that, that isn't in your way necessarily. You can walk right past it. You can keep going. Now the kid and I, Aaron, you had a good example as somebody with kids <laughs> of where this Put it putting the breakfast cereal like the lucky charms and whatnot down at the lowest level yeah so that the kid it's right at eye level for the now, kids that's getting a little bit close i think uh, <laughs> i think you're starting to push your luck there but the th those tricks though aren't as i mean again i i really like this race they aren't hostile they aren't being designed to hurt you trick you or or stop you do you remember the internet before ads like like it's just it's it, it's kind of mind blowing. Like we just accept there will be advertisements everywhere now, but there didn't used to be. <laughs> and it's and like it's fine. I'm just saying the economics of this stuff. Like I understand that there has to be because you know there's not newspapers anymore, and like I get why it has to exist. I think there's just a question around like determining acceptability, and also like people like us. We work in the field. We've been in the field a really long time. We've been in the web long enough to know like when like. This stuff wasn't fiat when you didn't just do you didn't just get online right when you just didn't have things automatic to go from a world where that's the case to a world where now there's like you know kids and grandkids who have never known a world where you know uh where there was a web or like where they don't build things themselves right it's hard i think it's harder to uh it's harder for them to know like hey this isn't okay because it's just all they know right and it's yeah. just gonna it's continue to get worse so i don't know so let's uh, compare this real fast because, of course, we, we talk about it from like the, the hostile pattern standpoint to the impulse item kind of approach. There's also another phrase that gets thrown on, and, and you used it uh, earlier, anti-patterns. And they tend to get kind of lumped together a lot, but at least to me, I, I have always considered them to be very different. Uh, because when I think about anti-patterns, I generally think of them as... Like the either the you know counterintuitive decisions we might make as designers or unintentional things we do, like you know, let's say somebody who doesn't really understand color contrast puts you know white text on a yellow background. You know that's that is an anti-pattern because you should never do that. But some people haven't been exposed to the reasoning for that, and I just I wanted to say that out loud for folks. Carousels are one that I come back to. I. I rail against carousels. I hate them. Um, but people use them because when they're sitting in meetings and thinking about this stuff, they think, oh, well, if we need to get more content on the homepage but we can't take up more space, that's the best way to do it. And it's not even that that hurts the user. It's just a bad approach to usability, right? Yep. Yeah. I, you're, I think you're right. I think that there's definitely a distinction between anti-patterns and you know, bad, you know, negative uh, dark, dark patterns or whatever else. And so... There's definitely a distinction, I think, to be made. I think often 
part of the reason they get conflated, especially now, and part of the reason I've even conflated them is because a lot of folks, if they're not trained in UX or don't have the background and sort of other things, I think just even exposing them to the terms can be useful. But but I think that it's definitely a distinction to make that not all things that are bad on not all bad design is necessarily uh, a hustle, right? Yeah, and. I think, uh, uh, Aaron, you'd made this comment, and I don't know if it was while the tape was rolling or if it was before we started, but you, you made the comment about it's, you know, the difference between mistakes and malice. Like, yeah, it's okay to make a mistake. That That's fine. We can teach you to not make mistakes, but we can't teach you to not be bad. We can, yeah. well, but we... then you can still choose to be a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most people, when they learn about a mistake, they grow from it. Malice tends to be the kind of thing that you don't grow from. You know, it takes a lot more work to get around. Would you consider anti-patterns to be, like, a more general category under which hostile patterns fall? Or do you consider anti-patterns to be, like, a parallel category to hostile patterns? I would think that if you were trying to categorize it, which is probably getting too semantic almost, but I think if we were going to categorize it, I'd say that dark patterns are probably an anti-pattern. They're yeah. like... As opposed to the other way around. Yeah. Okay. So if anybody is looking for like a really good rundown of this and, and wants to get kind of acqu uh, acquainted with all of the terms and, and uh, the rationale behind it, the, the guy who is generally credited as like the, the man who figured this stuff out, so to speak, is Harry Brignall. Um, and he started a website back in, I think, 2010, um, nine, nine, ten years ago. That's literally just darkpatterns.org. And he's got definitions there, he links to articles there, and he's got what they call the Hall of Shame. And anytime people tweet out different dark patterns to them, they share those through that uh, resource so that you can actually see these things in action. And, and I think, and we'll talk about it here in a, a few minutes, that there are what he has built out as classifications, you know, different types. The same way we have different, you know, kinds of usability and things like that, he's figured out there are very discrete types of uh, hostile design that roll into this that you can start seeing. And once you see them, you start picking them out very quickly and easily. DHH did a long tweet storm a while back about trying to deactivate your Facebook account. A lot of sites make it difficult to cancel, but Facebook is, and they, they do things like they do. They know, are you sure? Are you really sure? Like type in your thing. And then it's like, oh, look, here's all the friends that are going to miss you. And I'm sure that they pick them very carefully. Uh, like, are you sure you want to cancel? And it's like, dude, I already said that I wanted to. <laughs> it's it's the difference, right, between confirming and yeah. uh, and trying to stop you, basically. Like, like when when Windows is asking you to confirm that you want to delete the file. Windows doesn't care. When Windows is like, I don't, I'll delete it. You want me to delete this thing? It says really important, but I'll delete it for you. That's cool, man. Whatever. Windows doesn't care if you delete if it deletes your file. It's how, trying to help you protect you from yourself. Yeah. But like Facebook wants you on the site. This is a, a great uh, plug back to the video that we mentioned. Um, that it's on the dark pattern site, and uh, I actually maybe I didn't plug it yet. So good chance to plug it. Uh, I plugged Ron's video. Um, there is a video on uh, on YouTube, we'll have a link to it, that is from NerdRider. And it's about, uh, you know, how to see how uh, dark patterns are influencing you. And they use Amazon as their example of, 
what you have to go through to delete an Amazon account. They have actively hidden the way you delete your account. And, like, that is the worst kind of dark pattern at that point. It's one thing to just, like, bug somebody, you know, and hope they just give up. But Amazon has gone the extra step and said, yeah, we're just going to not make it even remotely easy. I encountered something like that recently. I'm just trying to rein in all of my drip subscription things, you know, like $1 here, $2 here every month. And so, like, I tried to cancel it from this one website, and I could not find anything on the site about subscription management. And I had to email someone, and it took about two or three days, and they finally got back to me today and said they'd take care of it. I don't, I'm not thinking they did this on purpose. I think it's just that they're a small operation. But still, it's like, I'm giving you, like, a few dollars every month. Give me some agency over that. <laughs> so let's talk about how this, you know, that's, that is what it is. You know, those are the experiences. Everybody will have a story. Um, if you've got a particular story, by all means, share it with us. I'd love to hear, you know, where you ran into it. There are a lot of ways this stuff comes into design and development. And I mentioned, just mentioned the video on YouTube. We'll have a link to that from NerdRider. That's a good example of how that leaks in. That Hall of Shame on Dark Patterns, that is a great resource for seeing these different things. Because what you'll what you'll come to find is there are always these small interactions. You know, it's the one button. It's it's the one time they colored a button green when it was a negative action, uh, as opposed to having <laughs> it be, you know, red. Or they'll put a button in the same place as all of your affirmative actions when you're trying to take a negative action. The, yeah. the way your reflex response works, the way that a website trains you, so if a, a site trains you to click in the lower right corner to do a certain action all the time, and then they decide, well, now we want you to do something for us, and they put that in that same, they're using that trained response to do it. Reflex actions are very intrinsic to what makes a dark pattern successful, and when you get results... You know, it's a false reinforcement. It's not working because the user understands it. It's working because you're tricking them. And that's not good rationale. So I want to go into a, a little bit of a rabbit hole, then come out of this rabbit hole, and then we'll go back into it later. Back in episode 32, we talked about the Ten Commandments of UX. Or rather, we talked about somebody else's article talking about the Ten Commandments of UX. The Eighth Commandment was, you shall make decisions your children's children will be proud of. And this commandment hinged on ethicalness. Uh, the actual phrasing of, of the description is, can you make the user stay longer, spend more than they should, or get just a little more addicted? Can you lie to them? Can you guilt trip them to get what you want? Yes, we totally have that sort of power, and the realities of business will potentially result in someone asking you to do so someday or another. I know where I draw the line. I want to draw Ron into this conversation now. <laughs> When it comes to the ethical component of hostile design, you know, where as a designer or developer should we stand when we get asked that question of, hey, let's let's do this, you know, that's okay. Uh, how how do we balance that as a designer or developer? Oh man, it's all to unpack here. So I will say this that there are but there are some books out right now, won't name any names, from folks who are talking about this ethical design shenanigans. And specifically around this idea that all design really just needs is ethical standards and an association, you know, like a bar association, like lawyers or some sort of Hippocratic oath, like doctors or something absurd like that. And I'm just <laughs> like, put down, put down your effing whiskey. Design no harm. 
Hey, I'm drinking bourbon, damn it. And it's not to say like and it's not to say that I don't appreciate like the overall sentiment of this stupidity. But it doesn't make but it's like an ahistorical understanding of like any of this stuff. Like the decisions that people make in like design are just business decisions that folks are just translating to the web. And the reason that they do it is because they can get away with it. Just like they do in real life with everything else. Like it's not some special the web despite what we believe on Twitter, because all of us hang out there. Is this this is that somehow the work we're doing is somehow more like honor, you know, or honorable, and that we have like we really are trying to change the world? It, like, because it just doesn't make any sense. And so, like, so I guess the answer to that question is that no, I don't think that it's again, I appreciate the sentiment of like, yes, design should be more ethical, but you know what should also be more ethical? Like, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you all, like, we all met when I worked in higher ed years ago. And one of the things that always frustrated me about that existence was how, like, myopic the work got at times. Where, like, mm -hmm. all, like, all we got wasn't, like, actually hanging out with all, you know, the broader community was actually great. But on a campus, how, like, focused we were on, like, the, the, just the things that we were focused on were only us and nothing else. Without really considering the broader world or the broader context mm -hmm. of, like, maybe the school down the road, there are competitor quotation marks. But maybe they're doing something we can learn from. Let's talk to them and figure that out, especially when it comes to things like web stuff and, you know, digital things and design things that aren't competing, competing with their website. I don't care about kids' schools. Kids are going to go where kids go, you know? And so you think about, like, design and ethics and things like that. I, I just don't, I don't, I don't, I do not subscribe to this notion that, that, that more ethical designers are somehow going to be empowered to make better decisions. Because at the end of the day, Someone graduating from college is just trying to pay their student loan debt back or mm -hmm. just trying to, you know, move up to a management job for the first time and whatever else. So, the, so actually, the, I think the thing to say about this is I frame my, my talk and I'm working on some things beyond it to focus on people who have regular day jobs or everyday people who are not empowered to make these calls that VPs and CEOs and so forth, or CTOs and so forth get to make. Mm -hmm. They're not the ones making business decisions. They're the ones executing business decisions. And so, no, I'm not gonna tell someone who's been in their job three years to quit because their boss tells them to do something unethical because, hey, that's your decision. But also like, there, we've all been in situations where we do something we didn't really wanna do. Mm -hmm. And if you do that enough times, you're like, okay, well, I'm not gonna be here anymore. This is toxic. I just think that it's really haughty of people, and I, this is a rant of mine, of folks who are writing books, who are like established, who own agencies, who have you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter, running around screaming fire in a movie theater, telling everybody that, oh, what we really just need to do is make design more exclusive because that's gonna fix it. And if you just let them run it and come up with organizations that fix it, that'll make it better, and it's bullshit, so. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. That is why I asked the question, because I, I think that there is a lot of good discussion around what the right solutions are to those things and whether it is because it, it is interesting to think about where some of those uh, those tropes are coming from in terms of, you know, in a digital influencer, somebody who's been doing design for 20 years and has the luxury of saying, yeah, you, you should stand up for that because I, I will say straight up, I've been in that position. I've been looking at a bad decision that I had to decide, well, I can either do it or tell them I won't do it and get fired, but <laughs> I do still want to make my paycheck. It, what I would say, and, and like the, the sort of lightweight counterpoint I would give to it is just because you 
choose to not throw yourself on the fire, so to speak, or, or, or throw yourself on your own sword doesn't make you unethical. The ethical decision is to do the work and do, you know, make sure you are empowered to still be there and make sure to encourage and uh, educate, basically. And I'll use that word later, but... I think there's another... And I mean, this this is kind of in the in-between between dark patterns and anti-patterns. So I've I've worked for organizations before that have run like A-B tests. You know, like you have what happens if we make the button this color? What happens if we put this thing over here? You know, you, you do different things and then you see how it affects you know, your your targets. You look at your KPIs and everything. And, you know, sometimes you run an experiment and then it results in a, in a lift on an important KPI and you're just like, oh, this is great. I think that there's perhaps a, a reflection period that should happen after that, which is like, are we are we the bad guys doing this? Like, is this a bad <laughs> thing to do? Because it's not always obvious because you're just looking at the data. It's like, oh, well, if I move these pixels from here to here or make them in this different shape, then more money comes in or more students come in or whatever. And I mean, it just seems like, uh, like, like, Oh, this is great. This is like, you know, free success for us. I just pull this lever. Um, and it's not specifically that they're trying to con people, but it's, it's just, it's what data shows. And I, I think Ron touched on that earlier. Um, don't they call it like leaving money on the table or something? Isn't that what they call it? Like in the, the capitalism world, don't leave money on the table. Yeah. 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 So let's uh, shift gears a little bit away from the, the ethics side, because I'm going to come back to that before we're done. The, let's just strictly talk about the types, where you will see this stuff manifest, so to speak. Okay, we have, like, we have a list of like 17 a, things. A giant, it's not 17. Don't scare them. Oh, no, it's 11. But they have cool names, and I'm really excited to learn about these. <laughs> this is the list that... Uh, Harry Brignall put together, and it's, it is the same list. If you go to darkpatterns.org and click the uh, Types of Dark Pattern link in the header, you will see the same list. I copied it. Sorry, Harry. <laughs> but it because, I mean, this is kind of the, the de facto structure that people have gone with. So, first off, he has Sneak into Basket. This one is relatively easy. I don't see this one very often, quite frankly. What What is it? And... It's exactly what it sounds like. So if you are, you know, imagine yourself at Amazon or Newegg or something and you go to buy something at, and when you go check your cart, you realize you've got more stuff in there than uh, uh, you wanted or you have something in there that is like a promo item or whatever that requires you to go through extra steps to get rid of. Oh, I don't see that very often because there is another one that's going to come up here later. Um, that I think is a better fit. But, you know, just that idea of, like, upselling. Upselling to okay. me is not the same thing, you know, or trying to trick somebody into upselling. It's not at all the same thing for, you know, the sneak in the basket. Upselling is when the server asks you if you want to, like, add bacon to your salad. Right. This is where they just bring you a salad and then charge you for it later. It's, you know what what it is, is it's it's the hidden checkbox that says... Oh yeah, do you want to oh, add yeah. the four-year maintenance agreement? Right, and that gets right. bolted on to your your shopping cart item. Then it's when you have to opt out instead of opting in. Yeah, anytime you you have you know opting conditions, and a lot of the times this will happen with uh, text that is gray, 
You know, they will make mm. the text very faint or the checkbox very faint. Like I said, I don't know offhand of anybody that I can think of that is bad about that. If you go in and look, like, they've got some, and, and their example is GoDaddy. And GoDaddy is not a bad... <laughs> GoDaddy is not a terrible example, mind you, uh, but I do feel like I feel like they have improved, and I also feel like they just try to trick you into upselling more than they are actually trying to sneak something into your basket. But does this does this include things like where you're you're filling out a registration form and the boxes for like, oh yes, subscribe me to the all these emails and send me third party emails is pre checked. And then you have to uncheck it? Yeah, that's an interesting, like, variation on the concept. Like, yeah, I, I want to... No basket. I want to do one thing, but you're going to bundle some stuff yeah. with it. It is a similar principle, yeah. Um, and yeah. I don't... I, I would say it, it falls into this, mainly because I don't think any of the other ones apply. So I'll I'll take that. I like that. Ron, can you think of any... Are, are there any current ones that you know of that would fall into this type? Not offhand. It's funny because... For me, I don't get as focused on the specific ones, partially because I feel like users don't have a real awareness. Like, I think it's hard for people to understand, like, the distinctions. Okay. And so, so I focused more on sort of broadly on, like, bad and talking about, like, the way and, and the way and the ways to the ways I think we can mitigate, fix, remedy some of this stuff. Um, as opposed to really being granular, because again, I think part of it is you only people's attention for a short period of time. Also, Harry's just an amazing job on that side of being very granular and breaking things down. So I focus less on it in my talks, but I the and, and you know I'll I'll defend the idea of going through the types, if only because I think it helps for somebody like me, let's say, like somebody who does understand the concept. If you can, if you see one in the wild, and you want to go to the company mm. and say, "Hey, you guys are doing this. It's this kind of bad thing." I think that helps in making a case to encourage them to change it rather than just saying, I don't, I don't like this. It doesn't feel right. Like that, this gives it uh agency to enforce change. I think is where that. I don't, I don't disagree, especially for like more developer type folks. Like, mm -hmm. cause you come from that world. I think yeah. that like, that makes more sense to me. I tend to speak to folks who are not. So like mm -hmm. for sure. them, it, they tend to gloss over it. But I think for devs, it definitely is an audience that, could benefit from like knowing like you know, having worked on the IT side for years, right? Like where folks are just like, well, why is that bad? I don't understand. <laughs> I'm not malicious. You know me. I'm not a bad guy. What are you trying to say? And it's like, no, no, no. Let, let me show you why this is bad. So I think this, so I agree the specificity for specificity can work for, 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 I think for other audiences. I'm not a bad person and I'm doing this. Therefore this isn't bad. I get I guess I can totally see that. So yeah, absolutely. What I have seen in the wild quite frequently and have in, encountered is Roach Motel. That's the like an Amazon thing. Yeah, right? easy to get in, yeah. hard to get out. Okay. Uh, and that's I mean most sites quite frankly, uh even with stuff uh with you know the uh, increasing attention to GDPR, mm -hmm. January 1st, 2020, CCPA comes into effect. That's the California Consumer Protection Act that has many of the same requirements as GDPR, uh, that ability to easily say, I want to cancel my account, is going to increase in, in prominence. And you're not going to be able to get away, and I, I think folks like Facebook and Amazon are going to be faced with that, that they can't hide your ability to do that anymore. I'm going to talk about legislation here in a little bit, and 
I think this is one area where I think it is absolutely appropriate that, you know, telling mm-hmm. a site that you have to let people leave, that, that has to be a thing. I mean, come on. But yeah, the Roach Motel comes up all the time. Any, anywhere that you pay somebody, basically. You talk about leaving. One of the things I've talked about a lot in my talk is about um, closure experience and about how, like, we're so, we're so busy onboarding folks all the time and trying to get folks to adopt our things. We don't spend enough time thinking about when people have done using the service or tool or thing, or if somebody mm-hmm. dies and they're using our service, how do we make sure that the closure experience has as much humanity as we want the onboarding process to have? Yeah. And Ron, you made a comment earlier that uh, was just alluding to like the, the individual circumstances. There are so many reasons somebody may want to close a Facebook account. Maybe they're being stalked. Maybe they're mm-hmm. getting death threats because of an article that quoted them. You know, if you're on a service like, you know, one of the Hulu or Sling or, or DirecTV, maybe you just lost your job and you can't afford that service anymore. There are genuine logistical reasons people need to take that action that you need to honor and respect. And I, I would argue that those reasons probably outweigh the people who are just like, fuck your service. I don't want to be here anymore. Even if, even if you have someone like even if your thing works and you keep someone from canceling their account okay well now you have a user who doesn't want to use you that you're still stuck with that turns out great in real life right like <laughs> <laughs> so this uh third one is a fantastic name privacy zuckering <laughs> fantastic name that's just tricking you into giving away your information basically oh okay we're gonna make all this stuff public or you're consenting to this advertising you know you think about the check boxes on opt-in forms and all of this stuff that's like hey uh and the the fun misdirection tactic that comes in here is check this box if you want to opt out you know th- right, that kind right. of thinking like we we're trying to get you to give us all of your information and let us do stuff with it you know what? You know what's I think fa- probably falls under this is um uh like like terms of service or the EOLAs. You know that no one reads, but like the business can say like, well, clearly you've read it or you've had the opportunity to read it because you checked the box and scrolled through the thing and hit the button. Um, but the the stuff is like proper legalese, and what I'm gonna pay someone like two hundred dollars to read this thing for me to make sure that it's okay when. Nine times out of 9.1, it's, like, fine. Or even the ones that force friction, even the ones that make you scroll down. Like, you know, a lot of these software ones will make you scroll all the way down before right. the accept yeah. button. Even in those instances, we're still just going right through them, right? Like, I can appreciate the sentiment of, yeah. like, getting folks to read it. But I think the question becomes, like, that's one of those deals where it's, like, a team having to work with legal to figure out how do we make sure that we, we meet the terms of, service of giving folks this information while also recognizing that we want to make sure that things like, you know, the most important parts of this, this information is brought to the fore. Those are design decisions I don't think are made enough or considered enough. So, uh, as we plow ahead, price comparison prevention. This is one I'm going to say again, I haven't seen very much, but the, the one place where I have seen it, and I don't think it's intentional. I, I so I wouldn't necessarily call it hostile design but I would just call it bad planning, is Amazon. And if you've ever tried to price things that are bulk packaged and they will, under the price, oh. they'll say something like, this item is 97 cents an ounce. Right. Or, a, you know, a dollar ten per item. But <sighs> across multiple items, 
that These aren't packaged units. the same. Yeah, they, they the units change, or they won't have it at all. Supermarkets do that a lot. Or a 12-pack of an item will just be priced as one unit. Um, that's where I think that gets bad. And I like I said, I don't think that's Amazon's fault, so or to the, speak. The, or the price per unit is done using, like, distributor-level, like, volume. Like, this is the price per 100 sticks of deodorant. Yeah. Like, well, I don't care about the price per 100. I want to know how much one is. I argue it's their fault in the sense that there's an article that came out the other day talking about, like maybe like literally yesterday, talking about folks who just travel the country selling things on Amazon because it's really easy to do. If folks are using your platform to do deceptive stuff, enough to the point where somebody can create long-form journalism around it, it's, <laughs> it's probably your responsibility to cut that shit out. And obviously Facebook's the easy target here, but I, but I just, I mean, like at the end of the day, like, <laughs> let's just say hypothetically the social network where people were murdered, the, the network would not be able to say, well, I, you know, hey, look, hey, you signed a EULA and I, yeah, we didn't know. We're not <laughs> murderers. We didn't know folks were going to sign up and be murdered on the server. We're here for love. This is a love service. It's not a murder service. <laughs> <laughs> like they might get in trouble for that. But somehow it's okay for all the other stuff that happens and people are just like, la, 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 too busy counting the checks. Speaking of which, not at all the same, but uh, Misdirection is the next one. <laughs> that's, that's very appropriate. Yeah, good, good segue. Not really. Well, uh, well played. <laughs> mis misdirection is, I mean, self-explanatory. That's where you are trying to get people to look one way while you're doing something else on the side. I actually think... Uh, they the sneak in the basket had the GoDaddy example. I think mm. GoDaddy is much more in the misdirection area. What what would that look like in uh in like a UX? So this is all about uh I like pop ups as a case of misdirection. Okay. Especially when they try to confuse where the close buttons are. Mm. If you've ever seen like uh this this process of hide the close button, put an agree button or something where where it is or even better the flash of unstyled content do you remember this the uh, fusk yeah so when banner ads come into play they have a space that they come into but on some websites they don't include any kind of styling that keeps that space open until the ad loads because you're going to go up and click on something and when you go right. to click on it then the ad the, jumps in yeah in the time it takes your brain to process where you're going to go the ad's coming in, and so you are misdirected into clicking on that ad. And in a lot of cases, that makes people money just yeah. by the click-through. You know, somebody's getting charged for the click impression. Um, so there is there is an incentive to misdirect people in terms of where, like, literally misdirect them physically on the page. So I think that also falls into that, uh, uh, you know, in my opinion. Hidden costs is next. Hidden cost generally applies to anything, you know, we've seen it in hotels. Ticketmaster, I hate Ticketmaster. I refuse to oh. do business with them. A lot of airline websites up until the last couple of years had this problem. You know, the, just this idea of trying to keep all the taxes and fees and and Where they, list the, they list the price. The price that they show when you're making your selection right. is not the price that you pay at the end. And so there's like kind of a nebulous X factor happening in between the two. I don't think, and, and what comes to mind is like, I haven't used Airbnb yet. Uh, 
I don't think they have anything like that. I don't know if you guys have used it. I would not say that they're not they're not the worst culprit of any of these things. They did used to, it used to be bad about Airbnb's thing is funny because folks can um assign a a cleaning fee to their place. There are all kinds of other fees they get added to the thing. That they collect sales tax. And so the price you see when you browse isn't the price you pay. And part mm-hmm. of that is just because um of how they set things up. I think it's changing or it may have changed already. Um, where it's quoted to where if you look at it, it's actually the, 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 the per night price is right. But, um, but yeah, there are far worse culprits. They're not the best, but there are, there are others that are uglier. After hidden costs, you have bait and switch. Bait and switch is, uh, the one, and it, this one, bait and switch and misdirection. I think there's a lot of overlap, at least to me, because the bait and switch, I tend to apply to things like when you have buttons that, you know, lead you down a path and then you swap where the buttons are. Oh, that, okay. That's okay. that to me tends to be bait and switch, but it does require you to set up a expectation that that's where it's going to be before you know. Otherwise, it is just a, a misdirection. Another place where I see it is uh, anytime there is a cancel versus continue option, mm-hmm. and your continue option is really big, and the cancel option is really small. And they're trying to get you to click on the wrong thing in those does, cases. Does this include where, like, the affirmative action is, like, a colored button and the, like, negation action is, like, kind of an empty box? Right. Yeah, that would be one, okay. too. Because you're Even clicking... if they're the same size? Anytime, especially colors red and green, are abused. Mm. Because green is always perceived as kind of an affirmative action Mm -hmm. i want to approve a something and people will use that as a way to you know hide that you're doing something you don't want to do there's an example in that nerd rider video where uh in a mobile app when they they teach you through the whole application that every time you're done with something you get a green button in the lower right and it takes you to the next step (laughs) until you lose a game and then once you lose a game, the pop-up you get is a green button in the lower right, but it drives you into a microtransaction uh... instead of just continuing. And so what they've done is they set up this pattern, and this is why I say misdirection and bait-and-switch to me, there's a yeah. lot of overlap. Like, they are intentionally trying to get you to do the thing, and then when you click the button, it has rooted you into a whole other funnel. Right. Don't like it. Confirm shaming. I love the name of that. <laughs> Con- confirm shaming is... Uh, I was interpreting this as being like when they they prompt you for an action, it's like, do you want to save 30% on underpants this year? And then it's like, like yes. Or it's like, no, I like having racing stripes or whatever. And No, that, that also, I think, falls okay. into the same, uh, the same deal. A lot of these, a lot of these, like, hostile patterns seem to be built around this idea of, like, muddying user consent. Um, and that's shitty. (laughs) But they just come from real life examples, right? Like, we were doing this stuff before. Remember all the junk mail we used to get? They just translated it online. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And we do, you know, there's a whole different set of these, you know, uh, like when you get junk mail and you get that envelope that, just looks oh. like a, you know, just a plain old legal envelope that, you know, has a, what looks like a government office uh, address in the corner and everything to get you to open it. And it's like, a, 
Hey, did you know you can save 25% on your life insurance? I got one from, I'm not going to name them because they don't deserve this. They're jerks. Um, it said time sensitive information and it didn't have a return address. And I opened it up and it's like, I don't want the stuff you're selling. Um, that actually, I think, goes into the next one, though, which is disguised ads. <laughs> so, <laughs> good, good setup for that, actually. Uh, that was not intentional. <laughs> what, what do they call it? Advertainment, uh, I think, is the phrase uh, that gets thrown around a little bit. Or anytime uh, I have, because I do keep up with tech articles and things like that, you know, and I used to actually work for a hardware review website. So to me, this is especially kind of like sticky in terms of knowing if the thing you're reading has been paid for. Mm, yeah. And sponsored content. And this happens in newspapers. It happens in magazines. It happens on the radio, on your nightly news. Mm -hmm. All of these segments that are presented like news, but they aren't news. And Everybody knows that they're being dishonest by doing that, but they are doing it in that way because they want you to trust it more. Uh, and we do it on the web just as much. I once saw a full-page advertisement that had an article that was sponsored content. And the only reason I could tell it was sponsored content is because it said this is sponsored at the very bottom in tiny, tiny text. Yeah. And also the font was slightly different. Barely, though. It was very close. But it had a fake ad in it, though, to make it look like... The content was real. It may have been a real ad. You don't even know it. It's ads and ads. It's ads all the way down, brother. It's... I, I don't remember what the ad was for. I wish I did, but Adception. I guess it's possible. Just go back. They'll show be there waiting for you. They've been waiting for you. Amazon is super bad about this. Mm. Uh, anybody, if you've searched for something and the first search result is always a sponsored result, yeah. But they don't present it differently, and the only way you can tell is if it hap if you happen to see that little sponsored, and what is it? It's gray text on a white background that says sponsored. Uh, that's a disguised ad all the way through. Google in um in the I'm feeling lucky book that I read mm -hmm. a year or two ago. He was saying that in the very beginning, when Google was squaring off with I forget the competitor name, it wasn't like Yahoo or AltaVista. It was like a different company. But they were doing ads like how Google was. Google did not want to do pay for placement at the top of the thing. They always wanted to show like ads that they really legitimately thought the user would want to see. Um, but they've started doing that now, though. They they allow you to pay for like higher ranking in the search results. So do you remember uh, when SourceForge was like the go-to for all things open source? And then they declined greatly. They've since been bought by, I think GeekNet is who owns them now. Um, and they've done a ton of work to it. And I had a conversation with one of the folks who bought them at one point, and he was telling me about some of this stuff. Um, but leading up to that, remember how hard it was to download stuff from SourceForge? Because every time you went oh, yeah. to a, a product page, all the ads said, download now. Right, right. That's a disguised ad. I mean, that that is a, a hostile pattern writ large. You know, making your advertising be the download button and being more like it was more in your face than the actual download button was. And I feel like that was an intentional choice on SourceForge or uh, SourceForge's part. If they didn't choose to do it, they certainly could have seen it and said, "Hey, advertisers, I know that you're paying us money for click-throughs, but 
maybe don't do this. Yeah. Force continuity is a big one. That's any anytime you sign up for a service and they offer you oh. a free trial. And but the free trial still requires you to put in your credit right. card. That's forced continuity because you know at the end of that trial they're going to start charging you and they're right. going to force you to opt out of the service at the end of it rather than opt in. Right. So it's just a case of turning, you know, consent backwards, basically. Right. You have to tell me not to do it, not tell me to do it. Right. That shows up in a lot of services. Uh, I, a lot of the streaming services, I think, still have that. Uh, and my experience is a little limited. I haven't used Hulu, so I don't know. I set calendar reminders. Cancel this on this date. To an extent, I also see this in services that auto-renew, especially like year mm. over year, and don't send you a warning. Oh, yeah, I don't like that. Huh. <laughs> I, have a, I have a card for this purpose, so that, um, and I always say it's a card that expire, or if it lets me submit some, some, some things, they're funny about this, I have a score cash card that I use just to attach to things like this so that they can't re- auto-renew like on me over a period of time. Huh, I'll get emails yeah. about it. Um, yeah. but, but a lot of them have figured that out. So they don't let you use prepaid cards to subscribe to things. Cause they, huh. they, they can tell cause they're like, uh, uh-uh. so, uh, so yeah. <laughs> so what my other tactic is to just cancel, I'll subscribe to a thing. And if it's something I'm not going to use, like if I just want to like read an article and it's for a month, I'll cancel immediately. And if I need to go back and do it again, you know, they're definitely going to email you and let you know, Hey, it's almost over. We're going to break up now. <laughs> um, and I use that as tactic because I'll, I'll forget. And so, um, yeah. So that's forced continuity. The very last one, and then we'll get into our closing segment, is friend spam. And if anybody wonders what friend spam is, I think, I hope, most of our users probably will have some recollection of the lawsuit that came against LinkedIn. What? The Do you remember this lawsuit where LinkedIn had a system that recommended you to your friends? And what it did was, when you clicked through the process, it would give you a list, you know, it would check your, you would say, you know, oh yeah, look at my contacts, whatever, or, you know, here are people you're connected to, you're doing something, hey, Mm -hmm. do you want to let these folks know? And it would send an email to all of them on Uh, your behalf. Okay. They settled, I think it was something like $13 million they settled this uh, lawsuit for this class action for. Um, this was a few years ago before they got super, super big. But it was still, I mean, they were still a big service at that point. But their whole thing was the process by which they said, hey, do you want to contact all these people? They did this sort of harassment cycle to try to trick you into clicking OK. And and in some cases, there were like two or three clicks you had to get through to yeah. not have that happen. And then they would ask you over and over, like if you were updating data or, or do, taking different actions. They would ask you, hey, we saw you just changed your job. Do you want to let your friends know? And it would email, if you had a 1,000 people in your contact list, it would email all 1,000 of them. Oh, it was awful. Uh, the, the mobile app did it. The website did it. So let's round out the show here by talking about how we deal with this as designers, as developers, as UX people. Um, because like Ron, you were saying, you're going to run up against this and it's unrealistic to think that it is worth losing your job over every time it comes up. Like, that is that is not the right answer, clearly. My argument is, and I alluded to this, is always be an advocate for your users. Know that these things exist and 
know when you're doing something wrong, and if you do feel like you are kind of undermining that that pattern, use it as a chance to come back in another three months or six months with some data and say, hey, remember that thing we did? I want to show you this and try to encourage better tactics. I think that's one of the big things, and that's the difference, I think, also between you know, in in this con, uh, uh, conversation of ethics in design, I think that's the real difference maker is the people who are willing to just do what they're asked and never question it versus do the thing, not feel great about it, and use it as an opportunity to try to affect change over time. And it's not going to happen quick, guys. I'm going to tell you right now. Because you may not get the opportunity to change it quickly. It may be six months, a year down the road before you revisit it. But just always being that voice or at least making sure you're putting up the fight on behalf of the users and saying, hey, guys, I don't think this is what we want to do. I think that's like step one. From there, I think we go into making sure we question test results, right? I said this earlier that uh, you can do a user test and get great results out of a certain pattern. But that doesn't mean the pattern is good. It just means that you've tricked people into doing it. And that's something to watch out for. And there's not a good way to do that, mind you. It is something to kind of be on the lookout for, especially if you already think that there, you know, if there's a scent there in terms of, uh, you know, you're trying to trick users into doing something. It's like, let's sit down and look at these numbers. Let's, you know, God forbid, talk to some of those users. Let's ask them why they were successful in that in that uh, trade and see if it reinforces the idea that, oh, I didn't actually mean to click that, but it got me where I was going. Like, that can tell you a lot, and it it still puts you in sort of that first position of advocating for your users. If you know you think there's something wrong there, talking to them and, and just understanding that what you need to build is right. Is that Does that sound... Uh, like a, a compromise there, Ron, in terms of that idea of the ethical debate. Like, be the good person, so to speak. I mean, what's good, really? I think, I mean, you know. You know when I see it. Yeah, I mean, right? But it, but maybe not. Um, what I've been saying to people is, uh, is, is, so when I talk, I mean, I'm sort of punchlining my own talk, but it's okay. Is No, do it. I tell people, I tell folks, among other things, I say, you know, listen to people. You know, like... Pokemon Go when, you know, they built on top of Ingress, which was, you know, an AR game. And it took for when it first launched, it didn't work in certain neighborhoods. You know, like certain like, certain like neighborhoods or people didn't play Ingress. And a lot of those neighborhoods are black neighborhoods. And it's like, if, and so I, I said, if they just walked down the street, if somebody got on the bus with their app, with their alpha, before they even decided to go to beta, I'm assuming with beta, if somebody got on the bus, they would have realized, hey, there are no Pokemon down the street, right? <laughs> um, and so, like, I feel like there are so many examples of that in the work we do. Um, auditing UIs, um, audit the UIs that you that you have, you know, for your apps or for your websites and so forth. Where are things where are things wrong? Where could things be even misconstrued as the seventeen examples you gave? Like, give me any number of those things that are proliferating the tools that we make every day. Um, and then when we do find them, log those. Okay, you can't get to them right now, but there's no reason why you know we've got you got Zenhub or, or GitHub or wherever you you're putting your issues that you can't tag these things. And just by even having a tag in your GitHub that says like 
call it whatever you want to call it, you know, dark pattern, ethical, whatever, call it whatever you want to call it. By having that, that even brings awareness to folks to be like, mm-hmm. oh, what's that thing you put in for that issue? What's that all about? During your standup. And you can explain real quick, oh, that could be misconstrued or, you know, that could be a problem for somebody. We should fix that. Or I was using that and it confused me and I work here, you know, bringing that awareness to your teams and the folks um, to let folks know these things are a problem. Because a lot of times it's not always malicious. Folks just don't know that these are actual problems. They think they're being helpful sometimes. The last one is just a, we call it designated dissenter. So when you know you're talking about building Wait, something the, or you are- Say it again? Designated dissenter. Designated, okay. So you build something and you've got, you know, somebody on the team wears the, gets to wear the hat to be like, well, what if, what if, going back to that example you talked about, we're on a live stream now, cool. What if someone kills somebody on our app? Oh, what <laughs> if somebody does this thing that's unsavory? What is it the other day? I don't recall what it was. There's something online. Oh, it was that a uh, superhuman or something. And the guy comes out and says, we didn't envision folks were going <laughs> to do that. You know, it wasn't our intent to do it that way. Nope, but it still happened, Skippy. So what are you <laughs> going to do about it? And just telling me you didn't mean it. I mean, we've all been in, you know, situations, friends, relationships, and you're like, I didn't mean to. That doesn't make it better. So what are you going to do to rebuild trust? With, with the person. There's still some ethics to discussing trust. If I don't trust your stupid app or your dumb company, I don't wanna give you my money. And when it's not, no one ever says the word trust. I'm gonna tweet this when we hang up. It's not, a, it's not about ethics, it's about trust. And if I don't trust you anymore, I don't wanna deal with you. And that's, that's the real issue. Wasn't there in uh, World War Z uh, when, uh, I forget if this is in the book or if it was just in the movie, but they're, they're, when they were in, Jerusalem talking to the one of the guys who said like the, the 10th man and it was the um in in the council of 10 people the 10th person always has to dissent they always have to say no here are the reasons why and so there's just always at least one person speaking up uh for the opposition so i like designated dissenter though that that's a cool idea so that actually comes back to an idea that i use which is just make sure that, like, if you're building something, that you're writing negative stories. Make sure you write that story of, hey, somebody's spouse died and they want to cancel their account. Or, you know, those find those negative use cases, the reason somebody would want to leave. And make sure you're writing those user stories and accounting for them. Because, like you said, Ron, you, I think you alluded to this, that, you know, we we ne- we don't think about those situations and we don't build for them we spend so much time thinking about how we get we don't think about how to let go and that let letting go is such an important part of the process did you read about the person who um their their child died i think and then facebook kept reminding them every year that their child had died yeah, it's, uh, I've heard Meyer. variations it's, on this. Yes, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Eric Meyer's book about uh, Eric. They wrote yes. a book. He wrote a book with uh, with Sarah Walker Bescher uh, called uh, "Design yes. for Real Life." It's a really good book. It's it's it's, it's sort of one of the so sort of, I think the canary in the coal mine of this topic around you know like we could be doing this better. Talking about things like stress cases and yeah. like yeah. it's not just you know and that's not just a, you know it's a, it's meant to arouse someone in a situation who are doing a thing. It's like I just wanted to do this thing and now you're going to stress me out. Like Facebook, Facebook knows when like when various good things are about to happen, they know when you're about like if you're getting married or they know if you just had a kid or whatever, but like they suddenly are completely oblivious. Like when you have someone die, like it just, they're not, 
they're not looking for these opportunities because it doesn't benefit them but like have empathy for your users <laughs> like this this can be like a two-way thing you don't have to be a dick about it the reason i i want to emphasize too that you know it is important for us to take this on and to be cognizant of these things and avoid them learn from them get better from them um i mentioned earlier there is legislation that is out there that is trying to deal with this and i liken it to you know does it have a cute name it does have a cute name it's awful uh, it's it's called the Detour Act, um, which it, it always has a cute name. Yeah, you know I don't. I'm looking it up. I, I don't love means. the idea. It's a uh, it's a uh, a name. I don't know. Oh, deceptive experiences to online users reduction. <laughs> yeah, it's it's this long weird name. It so the reason we have movie ratings is because movies were starting to get objectionable to people and the federal government came in and went to the MPAA and said, Hey, if you don't do something about this, we're going to start. And so the MPAA said, we don't want the government involved in this. We'll make up our own rating system to make people happy. But it's so and shitty they, though. And they did, but that that's why our rating system is the oh, way it is. I won't go into this, but on Netflix, there is a uh, a Netflix documentary called This Film Is Not Yet Rated, yeah. which is all about the ratings authority. Watch it, because it's a hot mess. And oh, yeah. Not, no, it's yeah, not I've being done correctly. I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the system is terrible. But yeah. it's arguably better than anything the government would put in place. But as... I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I know that we joke about that, but I don't think that's the case. But... I think that if... It would be boring, but it would be, like, rudimentarily effective. But that that's the thing, though, and that's what the Detour Act is kind of at. And if you go look, there's a Gizmodo article about it, and we'll have that link in the show notes. In that article, they also have a link to the, the text of the, the act. The, the thing is, especially when it comes to things like hostile design, what is hostile is very subjective uh, in some cases. And... They include some descriptions of things that I think should scare web designers and web developers. In one, uh, in one case, they say you have to have an independent review board if you're going to perform behavioral and psychological experiments. But that's not defined. Including A-B testing? Right. That's where my thinking goes. It's like, isn't an A-B test a behavioral experiment? All right, look, I, I do I do think some oversight is necessary or at least would be helpful. However, I, I think this guidance is coming from the same people who didn't know that Facebook makes money by advertising. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it, it's one of those things that, you know, if if you if you don't conform, conformance will be forced upon you. And I don't love that. I like I love that idea less than anything. <laughs> the, the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> right now, the the act says that it's only going to target websites that have 100 million or more active monthly users, which is, yeah. I mean, that's really narrowing down who that yeah. targets. But I also feel like they, that really is then really narrowing it down in a way that is also not productive. I will um, say this. I will say this about this topic. I can only say certain things. I will say, because I'm not involved in this in any way, but I will say this, that I think broadly it is good that somebody recognizes this is a problem worth solving yeah, in yeah. a macro way. Do I think the industry has a responsibility to solve for it? Yes. 
Yeah, that's all I'll say about that. I, I, <laughs> I, I, whether this act, I mean, also speaking of government sending legislation is another act, is another bill that actually passed called the IDEA Act. I know yeah. it's redundant. Um, talking about government websites and, and, and ways to improve those. And there's still some issues on implementation. We don't know how it's going to be done yet. But I think broadly it's good. And there's still a lot of, there's still a dearth of folks in government who are able to sort of, sort of triage these kinds of things. But I think broadly it's good to be thinking about it at a macro level. I do think that, you know, people in the industry as a, as a, as a, as a responsibility to, to focus on it. Even if, even if this, this law existed, there'd still be a responsibility for the industry to figure out how to not do not, you know, not consistently just race to the bottom. Yeah. And I think the, the underlying kind of current there is, you know, unethical is bad working against the interests of the user is bad. I also don't think that that means it has to be illegal. That seems like a very aggressive jump at that point. And it, it gets to where you're trying to use some of that as a weapon for change, as opposed mm. to a lesson for change. If you don't care, somebody's going to start caring for you, and I would rather have that power under my own control than having yeah. it thrust upon me. One thing you can do in that area, and, and as we went through that list of all these different categories of, of uh, hostile design, the way uh, that you can use this is as us, as people who get it and understand it and, and learn about this stuff, be willing to call out a company when you see it. Henry wrote an article for Alista Part back in, I think, 2011, where he was talking about dark patterns and honesty and UI design. And in that article, he talks about Audible. And Audible got called out on part of their uh, uh, forced continuity process by a user. Mm. And as a result, Audible said, hey, we get it, we fixed it, and we welcome any other input as well if other people find stuff yeah. so that they make their process better. So... You can absolutely influence these things. Like, you have that power. And a lot of companies, especially smaller ones, are actually really receptive if you're not an asshole when you go about it. If you just say, hey, did you guys know, like, this is really counterintuitive and harmful to the user, and here's why. That process can be very productive in getting people to change and make things better. You know, companies, just so you know, like, if I like your product, I'm going to pay for it. I will continue to subscribe. If I don't like your product, I'm going to make it my mission to find out how to stop you from taking my money. <laughs> so, like, like you're just making my life bad, and then you're making me not like you even more. Whereas before, it could have been like, hey, you know, this isn't for me, but, like, I won't speak bad of you. It's cool. Yeah. Like, we can part friends. But if you make it painful or annoying for me to get rid of it, I'm going to tell everyone that I know that you suck. Yeah. <laughs> As a designer, as a developer, just be open to learning. Make sure you go out and ask for feedback on your on your work and get you know input on that stuff. Have people smarter than you tell you what may or may not be wrong and be open and receptive to that. If you can, do user testing. And take time out to explicitly ask about any annoyances they had in that process. Because just because somebody can complete an action doesn't mean it's optimal and doesn't mean it's in their best interest. So make sure you ask about the things that got in their way because they may not say that in the process of testing it, you know, when you're having a dialogue with them. I I would add to that with um, read up on what consent means. Like there's been a bunch of stuff in the last five years on the internet about what does it mean to consent? It's usually done in like a, a dating or consensual or a sexual or romantic context, but like, I think 
understanding the concept of asking for consent will go a long way in understanding how you should engage with your users. Because it's, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of these things are just skirting around asking your users for consent properly and just sort of like forcing your product onto them. The the real underlying part to this that I think, and this comes with experience and it comes with technique and it comes with time, is learning when business goals are defining mm. the user funnel as opposed to the user journey defining the funnel. Because funnels are an important part of business and they drive the financial side of our business, but the user's journey should be the part that is defining that you should get the user to where the business wants by virtue of the user completing their stuff. You shouldn't be trying to force it or trapping them into that process because it's a business goal. That's where you get these things like forced continuity, misdirection, you know, stuff uh, adding to carts. All of those things happen. You have to choose your KPIs better. Like if you're if if Facebook's KPIs are um, how many users do we have with active accounts? what they should really be looking at is how many users do we have who are posting actively? Because if someone wants to leave and you're making it really hard for them to leave, they're just going to stop using it, even if their account's active. Yeah. Which means if you're just looking for active accounts, your KPI is going to be wrong. So, but at the macro um, level, some people don't care about that. So that's the yeah. problem. Yeah. yeah. So the last thing I've got on my list is teach. And... That's where I hope we come in. I hope folks have found this useful. I hope you found it helpful. I hope it's shed some light on some ideas or encouraged you to go look at stuff. Um, I have a, a sub point listed here that says code of conduct, question <laughs> mark. I have in the past on, on the show, you know, mentioned that I, I think that it would be good for as an industry to have some kind of Hippocratic oath, so to speak, that kind of helps define or guide us, so to speak. Um, Ron, obviously you have uh, other thoughts some in that area, but I think the the mantra, though, of teaching is universal, and this idea of we can't get better if we aren't making sure to train the people who are you know, getting trapped in anti-patterns, for instance, taking that time out of our schedule to you know, see something and help. And even when I said earlier, you know, giving feedback to other companies and, and what you see— because you don't know what the experience level of the people are who are building some of those things. So it can be very helpful, I think, to share your experience and knowledge and try to lift up those those developers and designers. I I heard what Ron said earlier about the code of conduct, and I, I completely understand that. And I, I don't think it should be ever a thing where, like, you resign in protest because student loans are expensive and we need jobs. However, I think it would be cool to have like a root strikers kind of thing, like, you know, having the, the pact that says these like bullet items, like we, we swear we will adhere by these like best practices and like good patterns and um, affirmatively saying we are not going to do these like hostile patterns towards our users. And then you know, that way, if nothing else, a, it gives us a named thing that we can talk about. So it makes it easier to discuss this. And B, it becomes really obvious when you are doing a hostile pattern because then the people who are making that decision, you can say to them, okay, look, we're going against this thing that we said we were doing. Are you sure? And then, you know, then it's like, you can't sneak into it. You can't be like, oh, well, what are we doing? Look at that. Look where they put the button. <laughs> like, it, there's no, there's no, like, 
weaseling through that. It's like, you, you know, you know that you're being a jerk. I, I think at least having that be a line in the sand that you have to cross. Yeah. So, uh, Ron, I'm going to give you the last word on this in terms of from the teaching standpoint, from the outreach standpoint, what can people do to help others get better at avoiding dark patterns or deal with them when they come up in their workflow? I think education is really important, right? Awareness, letting folks, letting people on your teams know what these things are and why they're a problem. Um, I think as much as you can, putting real faces and real stories to, I know we're not really personas we're sort of moving away from, but anyway, you can, you can help people sort of aggregate why these, you know, UI design patterns are bad is good, flagging them and, and making awareness in organizations. Obviously reading lots of books, um, like I mentioned design in real life and, and, you know, sort of different articles and so forth um, that are around this. Um, but I think a lot of it is, is, is very perspectives too. Like the last thing I'll say is, is that I think that too often a lot of our teams are our teams, whether we, whether it's research teams or internal teams or folks are, are can be designed with the same kinds of folks in the same kinds of places doing the same kinds of things. And I think it's really important for us to like, if we don't have broader perspectives on our teams, figuring out how we do that. Okay, we can't hire 10 new people. Let's figure out how we bring those perspectives into the conversation, make make it worth their while. Don't just ask people to do free work um, and and figure out how to bring those perspectives in to make, make the tools we're building better to make the sites work better. I worked at local government for a long time and that's something that you know, they couldn't pay folks, but wanted to make sure that we were, the community was using the things they were getting, getting it out early and doing what we could within our power to make sure that folks felt like they had a voice, even if we didn't really like what they had to say all the time. It made our job harder. Well, you know what? They're our audience. We need to serve them. And so I think just much, much as we can do that, I think that the better it is for better for folks and their teams and folks. And it's talk has resonated. I will say I've been a lot, I've been all over the country so far and it definitely resonated a lot with people, and I appreciated that. That, that there's an appetite for the conversation. So I am cautiously, cautiously optimistic about the future of the web as a result. Awesome. Well, folks, stick with us. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back, and we'll we'll let you know where Ron's going to be and what's going on and what we've got going on and all of those things. Sit back, relax. See you back here in 60 seconds. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenUX. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenUX. Ron, thank you so much for sitting down with us this evening. I know that, uh, you know, your time is certainly valuable, but at least you can still have some daylight maybe left over there. Um, it is <laughs> pitch black here. So uh, thanks for sitting down with us. I want to 
give you the microphone here for a couple minutes. Let everybody know where they can find you if you've got any uh, speaking engagements coming up, where they can check out your your talk or anything else that you've got going on. Um, well, again, thank you all for having me. It's been fun to catch up and to talk about a really important, you know, really relevant topic. Um, actually, I, um, I think for now this talk is done. Uh, I'm working on some other stuff. There might be another chance to do it at some point later this year. Um, but for now it's done, but you can obviously find me online, ronbronson.com, on Twitter as well, Ron, at ronbronson. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I sort of hate that I'm still on Twitter, but, you know, so it goes. <laughs> Um, I'm there. I'm there. I'm happy to talk to you as we all just sit, go in the sinking ship together. Awesome. Let's see. So that's Ron. Aaron, I'm going to pitch the ball over to you. No, I'm not. Why am I going to do that? Uh, we we already had that? this conversation. I, I, you yeah. you brought us in. I'll... We, spent like, we spent literally 30 minutes in that last 60 seconds discussing how we were going to do this. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm not good at this anymore. Uh, folks, if you want to find us, be sure to check us out online on Facebook or Twitter. We are slash Drunken UX. You can get us on Instagram at Drunken UX Podcast. Also, make sure to take a second out of your day. We would appreciate it if you'd stop by iTunes or Stitch or whatever. Leave us a rating or review, whatever podcast app you use. Just hit the little like button or the star button and just let other folks know you're enjoying the show. It's useful to us. It's helpful. It, it helps us build our audience and uh, extend our reach and get our... And share, share with your friends. Creepy... I mean, maybe voice all over other people uh that was weird everybody uh after having this conversation i think we've taught you a lot i think we've helped educate and i think we've reached out in the best way that we know how to do and the only thing that that leaves me with is one last piece of advice and and i think it's important i think it's something that is worth reinforcing so i tell you every episode to keep your personas close and your users closer bye-bye if they agree to it if they agree to it Opt in.